One of the most unusual election seasons in St. Louis history is over, and it's ended with Tashara Jones being elected the next mayor of St. Louis. Well, I think that we've seen in, in recent years that when a uh, when a city elects a black woman mayor, that does make national news and in a good way, uh, because that signals that the entire city um, is uh, moving uh, in a progressive manner. And we all know that the type of leadership uh, that black women have brought, uh, they've been very progressive, very innovative. On this episode of Politically Speaking, St. Louis Public Radio's Rachel Lippman and I break down Jones's historic victory and what's next for her administration with the changeover on the Board of Aldermen. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. We have to talk about things that matter to people. I've tried to bring that same aggressive iconoclast style with me to uh, the United States Senate. I think my district is a model for the state. We put Missourians first. You just kind of have to find the common ground with people. I believe that this district deserves someone who represents their values. After I came back to St. Louis, I started thinking that I could have a bigger role on the change that I wanted to make. And I'm Jason Rosenbaum, political correspondent for St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio today is... Rachel Littman, one of the other political reporters here. So uh, we're going to be talking about this historic mayoral election that happened yesterday. We're recording this at 1.04 p.m. on Wednesday. Surprisingly, I'm not that tired because the election was kind of wrapped up relatively quick, quickly. Yeah, I think I went to bed at like 1. If the birds hadn't been chirping at 6 o'clock in the morning, um, I think things would have been a lot better. At least they didn't. They waited until 6 o'clock and not 3.30 in the morning. But. Well, well, by calling uh, Tashara Jones mayor-elect, if you don't already know, uh, she won by a, a little over 2,000 votes over Alderwoman Kara Spencer in this uh, April general election. This was the first general election under this new system known as approval voting, which makes the April elections much more decisive than the March primaries in the past. Um, and we're going to break down some of the reasons why Jones won. Uh, we're going to talk about the the changeover on the board of aldermen, and we're going to answer some of your questions that Rachel posed on the not at all terrible social media platform known as Twitter. Rachel, why do you think Tashara Jones won yesterday? I think because she was able to convince people that she was, or not convince people, she was able to come across as the individual with the truly progressive platform, the platform where, you know, progressive individuals, those who call themselves progressive could say, we believe that she is going to take the city in this direction and that it's going to be good for the city and was able to get enough individuals who are are white to, to buy into that enough to say, you know, these are my policies. They they will say I will vote for policy based on instead of based on race. So we do have the ward by ward numbers, and basically Jones won by a landslide in the largely black wards in North St. Louis, which is not a surprise. Whenever there's a contested one-on-one election in St. Louis between a white candidate that's viable and a black candidate that vi- that's viable. I would say 99% of the time, the black candidate's going to win North St. Louis. Most of the time, yeah. Uh, what is notable is that Jones also won a number of wards in the Central Corridor in Southeast St. Louis, which I would describe as multiracial. Um, some are more African-American than others, like the 20th Ward, which 
uh, Spencer represents, I think is a pretty significantly black ward. And some, it's definitely majority minority for sure. I think there's a, Hispa- a Hispanic population in that ward as well. But. but this is the first time since 1993 where a candidate for mayor that's won has had significant support uh, from North St. Louis. And I want to play a clip now from Tashara Jones's victory speech that talks about the racial divide in St. Louis. And we'll 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 go from there. We are done ignoring the racism that has held our city and our region back. I made the same case four years ago and came up short, but I made peace with the fact that I would rather lose another election again than stop having the tough conversations in every corner of our city. Just as this is the first time since Freeman Bosley that a candidate with significant North St. Louis support won, this is the first time since I, I think that same election that the candidate that did that did not win Southwest St. Louis won the election because Clarence Harmon won most of South St. Louis handily. And obviously, Francis Slay just, you know, creamed his opponents because he's a South St. Louis person. Spencer got really big margins in places like the 16th Ward, the 12th Ward, the 23rd Ward, as well as the 24th Ward um, and some other South St. Louis wards. But I always kind of thought that that wasn't going to be enough for her to win because you really don't have a viable path to victory if that's your only base of support and you can't win in the more integrated wards if that your opponent is going to win most of North City. Is that your take too? I was always going to be watching, and I call them the the park wards. These are the wards that are kind of centered around Tower Grove Park. So it's the 8th, the 15th, the 6th, the 9th. Um, parts of kind of the 7th come weirdly down into that area because the 7th is just a very strangely shaped ward. But um, I was going to be interested to see how those wards uh, went for these candidates, which way they broke. Uh, both candidates did very well in those wards in the first round, which was you could pick as many candidates as you approved of. My question was, were there enough people who would embrace a candidate who is leaning into the city's racial issues, who is discussing them openly and saying we need to tackle them, and that is actually the lens through which I will conduct my business? Or were they willing to you know, go with somebody who is a little bit less aggressive on that issue? And you found them leaning into and embracing at least enough to give Jones the margarine of victory, somebody who was openly coming out and saying, look, we need to deal with this issue. And that was for me going to be, uh, that was what I was watching for is where those wards broke. If you're going to have some who are just like, "Mm, this is maybe a little bit of a bridge too far. I'm not quite comfortable with this. Uh, or if they went as they did for Treasurer Jones and gave her that margin. Uh, so if we get we look at this from a more political perspective, I think that there are a couple of overtly political factors that benefited Jones. Uh, one that hasn't really been talked about a lot is the demise of Lacey Clay's machine. Um, without that machine, which typically, you know, allied with more quote unquote establishment candidates like Slay in 2013 and Lewis Reed. Uh, at various points in time, uh, I think that doomed Lewis Reed's campaign. And without Lewis Reed making it to the second round, I think Tashara Jones was the favorite based off the geography. The other thing, too, is that and and, and we, we talk a lot about like what the progressives are and we can talk more about that in the second half of the show. We haven't really talked about like what the establishment is. And in my view, the establishment was basically set forth by Francis Slay for 17 years, which was this alliance of 
business leaders and business groups, which are very po- which is a very powerful interest group in the St. Louis region, that had this unprecedented alliance with organized labor, primarily trade unions. And as soon as Steve Stanger hijacked that coalition in 2014, I think that that it was only a matter of time before that coalition disintegrated, possibly because Steve Stanger was derived a huge opposition coalition. But also when Stanger went down in 2019, and this is no disrespect to Lyda Cruz, said, I don't think that she was politically strong enough to keep that coalition together. What do you think about that, Rachel? I did find it interesting that you did not hear the unions really making a play in this race. They they went some of one, the unions. Some of the unions did. Some of the you know, but it, it was a donation here. You didn't see a lot of we're out knocking doors for these candidates. I think the uh, Carpenters District Council, which represents a lot of city employees, did an open endorsement, which was basically we think either of these are going to fight for for workers. So that. There wasn't the, the same presence that you would ordinarily see of, you know, hey, we're out knocking doors in this right. world. The firefighters absolutely went all in for Spencer. But what was interesting is that that was simply the actual firefighters union, Local 73, the Firefighters Institute for Racial Equality, which is the advocacy group for uh, firefighters of color. It's very similar to the Ethical Society of Police. They were like, yeah, no, I don't know why uh, IAFF went for uh, Tashara or for uh, for Spencer. Excuse me. We're still backing uh, Tashara Jones. And, and Jones did get the backing of SCIU, which yes. for full disclosure, I'm a member of because I'm an adjunct instructor at Washington University. But a lot of the trade unions, like IBEW, for example, were neutral. Plumbers, pipe fitters, uh, etc. They did yeah. not really endorse anybody in this. They would put money into Spencer's account if you look. That mm. they give their packs would give five hundred dollars or a little bit more. But it certainly wasn't the uh, the door knocking army that you would expect unions to give for their preferred candidate. So I would I'm not going to generalize and say that Spencer and Jones were exactly the same on the issues because we could go through for minutes, if not hours, about some of their differences. But philosophically, I think that they were somewhat similar to each other. And They were I, more similar than different. And, the, the nuances are definitely there, and there are some where they do differ. Close the workhouse is a big one, for example. So but. I have a theory, and it's called the Peters-Carter theory, that in St. Louis politics, the closer you are in ideology, in a, in a race, the nastier it gets because the distinctions become less about issues and more about personal personalities and personal lives. And by the way, that's a reference to the Joshua Peters, Chris Carter senior race in 2014, which was probably the ugliest race I've ever seen anywhere in the entire Missouri political universe. Until potentially the Republican Senate race, but we we're, won't we're go not, there. We're not going there. This not is, yet. I think Jones alluded to this in this clip. My professional mantra has always been I ain't got to like you to work with you. I don't even have to love you to to work with you, but we have to get things done. But I will not stay silent about the need to eradicate dog whistle racism and the underlying bigotry from the discourse about politics. Rachel, can you kind of elaborate on like what Jones was talking about here? So this was mostly in reference to a comment that Spencer made on uh, an interview with KMOX referencing East St. Louis as a failed city and that uh, if St. Louis wasn't careful, they would become like East St. Louis. It was interpreted by some within Tashara Jones's camp, including the mayor-elect herself, that they were basically saying black leadership was what caused East St. Louis to uh, become 
become in the situation that it is, rather than looking at the issues of white flight, disinvestment, etc., that robbed East St. Louis of its economic base. And the illusion that people saw in that was if you put black leadership in place in St. Louis, you are only going to lead to the city's downfall. They saw the reference to East St. Louis as the racist dog whistle. So this is a clip from Spencer's concession speech. Um, She didn't reference any of that, but I think that she started off very, what I would categorize as graciously conceding to the mayor-elect. This is a historic election for our city. The first time in our city's history that we elected a single mom, just like me. But certainly, um, this isn't the result that we wanted, but nonetheless, this is an exciting night for our city, an historic one. Our city elected for the first time in our history an African-American woman to lead our city. And that is something that we should all celebrate. So when you look at Spencer's performance, all things considered, I wouldn't categorize it as bad or anything to be ashamed of. I mean, if she would have done better in some of the more integrated wards, she would have won. She would be the mayor-elect right now. So notwithstanding that there are going to be Tashara Jones supporters that are probably never going to vote for her again because of the acrimony we just referenced, do you think that she still has a future in citywide politics, especially if she can run in another race and and do better in some of the, the Jones wards where she didn't win? I think it's possible, yes, if she goes for the right race. You heard both her and uh uh, Mayor-elect Jones reference in their victory speeches during the primary that the fact both of them won and both of them advanced was a sign that the city wanted to go in a new direction. And I think if she can find a race where she is sort of very directly can put herself up as the foil to the old direction, the foil to that old guard, that old coalition, yes, she could have some success. It also really did her no good to be mean. It did her no good to not be a you know, somebody who is gracious to concede, she's still going to have to work with the mayor elect at the Board of Aldermen. She's still going to be a member of, and we'll talk about this later, this sort of new progressive voting bloc. It did her no good to not be gracious. We'll be talking about that next, right after this quick break. And we're back on Politically Speaking. I'm here with Rachel Lippman, uh, St. Louis Public Radio's Justice and City Politics Czar. Whatever you want to call me. Correspondent, <laughs> whatever. Let's talk about the Board of Aldermen, because some of these races just blew me away. No, I wasn't surprised that Ann Schweitzer beat yeah. Beth Murphy. I wasn't even surprised at the fifth ward result either, quite yeah, frankly. Uh, I was a little surprised by that. I was less surprised by the fifth than the twelfth, the, for the, sure. The twelfth ward where Bill Stevens defeated Vicki Grass, and I'm, I'm sorry but this is hyperbolic, that is one of the most surprising results I have ever seen in a St. Louis municipal election. And here's why. Uh, the 12th Ward is, is probably the most Republican ward in the city, maybe it was the, the last, 16th. It was the, well, uh, the 12th was the last one to have a Republican yes. representative at the Board of Aldermen, uh, Fred Heidert. Yes. And, uh, you know, traditionally has had like police officers and firefighters live there. I'm not sure if that's the case anymore. Um, but it's a pretty conservative ward. And not only is Stevens a member of the LGBTQ community, but he ran as an avowed progressive. He did not try to run as like a conservative Democrat. And I, I think this is like I think that this should be celebrated in terms of like a political science 
victory. It was uh, it was definitely uh, as I was looking at the races where they were trying to pick up these seats, where they were part of this that were part of this flip the board initiative. I looked at the twelfth and went, I'm not sure why they're targeting it. You know, yes, you could look and say, okay, well, the third candidate in that race got a a margin of votes that would have made up the gap between Stevens and Grass. But that candidate was much closer to Grass in terms of political. um, Oh, gosh, what's the word I'm looking for? Political positioning. He was more conservative. He's he's a more conservative. I, I don't know if he would call himself a Republican, but certainly more a conservative candidate. And, you know, he got basically the same number of votes as Grass did. So even if, you know, half of his supporters had broken for Grass, uh, she would have won. This is Stevens talking with our colleague, St. Louis Public Radio economics czar. Uh, and also very familiar with the Board of Aldermen because uh, of airport. But Corinne Roth. I think it, it truly indicates that um, I'm, I'm really truly just a drop of water in an overall larger body of water. Um, I'm but a drop in the river, if you will. And that that change is, is coming and that people want it and they trust it and that they're absolutely ready to elect it. So in addition to Stevens and Schweitzer and James Page beating Tamika Hubbard, uh, Tina Peel also beat Michelle Sherrod. Now, I think we have to be a little careful to categorize like Sherrod as like this conservative, stodgy establishment person. She had a lot of support amongst a lot of different people because she's a pretty well-liked person and very competent. And it's also a different scenario than the other three that we were talking about. Now, Grass is not a long-term incumbent. She's only really been on the board since uh, last July. She filled the the term of um, Larry Arnowitz, who was convicted of of mail fraud and and resigned. But um, uh, Peel and Sherrod were running in an open seat in the 17th Ward. So they were really, you know, you were running based on... Like you said, it wasn't really an establishment, long term established figure, although she is within her own right as a political figure, uh, a well-established individual. She was on uh, Claire McCaskill's staff for for a bit. So in that sense, yes, she may be, quote unquote, old guard. But as you mentioned, it was certainly not as if Tina Peel had upset Joe Rohde. Exactly. But the the long and short of this is and Ben Murray, who is a, a an excellent observer of St. Louis politics, uh, sent me kind of a spreadsheet that because, you know, we've talked about in this show before, like I'm uncomfortable with the progressive label because I think it assumes that people that aren't part of that are conservative. And I don't think that that's true. But let's just use the shorthand just for clarity's sake. He counted that there are about 15 people that could identify as progressive and 13 that that wouldn't. Many of those 13 are part of the uh, Aldermanic Black Caucus, so they may be supporting Jones on a bunch of issues for various reasons. It it does seem that Jones is going to have you you classified it as a fragile but working coalition, fragile but working coalition. And I think a lot of that is going to depend on the issues that you are looking at. Um, It may come into play, for example, in development and the way that incentives are used. I've long thought, even with the breakdown of the board as it exists for the next two weeks, that we were getting to a point where it was possible for a development project using incentives to be stopped simply because people disapproved of using incentives for a, a particular project. But I don't think it's going to be one of those where it 
it holds on everything and they can steamroll an agenda. And you also have to remember that a lot of power at the Board of Aldermen still rests in the president of the Board of Aldermen, Lewis Reed, who is not necessarily a fan of some of those people who are part of that progressive caucus. And also, I think you have to keep in mind that some of the people that are deemed as progressives, so I would include um, Heather Navarro on that list, Sarah Martin, mm-hmm. and also I think Spencer could fall in that list too. I, I It remains to be seen how much they're going to want to help Jones. I think it's going to depend on the issue, and that could also uh, matter a bit. But I do think that this is a big victory for one alderwoman in particular, and that's Megan Green. She's the 15th Ward alderwoman who won re-election handily over former alderwoman Jennifer Florida. I think that's the third time they've run against there, each other. That was one of, and no, and this is no disrespect to former alderwoman and former recorder of deeds Florida. That race was never in doubt. Like Green was going to win, you know, from the moment that race happened. But this is what she had to say about what this means for the board of aldermen. We have been sort of banished to committees that don't meet very often um, and and have not had a whole lot of power at the Board of Aldermen to be able to uh, pass a a progressive agenda. Um, But now with a majority of members of the Board of Aldermen identifying as progressive, um, it gives us power, it gives us a voting block um, to actually forward a progressive agenda. And with electing Tashara Jones as mayor tonight, um, it also helps her because it makes sure that we have a, a firm voting block at the board that is going to work to make sure that we can get her agenda passed through the Board of Aldermen. Now, as you alluded to, uh, the progressives can't assign themselves to committee. That is Lewis Reed's uh, job. They cannot assign legislation to committee either. So if if Reed wanted to, he could stack a committee full of anti-progressives, quote unquote, or those who maybe would not identify as progressive and then kick all their legislation to that committee. If he wanted to, he could still mess with and make their lives complicated. It gives them leverage in that you can use procedural moves with a majority to uh, get things moving a little bit. But it certainly is not carte blanche for the progressive agenda. And that leads me into another related but, but separate topic. I think it has to be noted that Jones does not have unlimited power to do things, especially that involve finances. That She needs the support of either Reed or St. Louis Comptroller Darling Green, who also won re-election in a very tough race against Unopposed. I'm telling you, Jason, one of these days, Unopposed is just going to be like, you know what? No, I'm tired of being a doormat, and I'm going to come in, and I'm going to take on this, and it's there's going to be a you know historic victory for Unopposed. So it's interesting because it was notable to me that when Jones was asked by Casey Nolan, who would you support if you don't make it to the April election? She said Lewis Reed, and Lewis Reed said Jones. And and a lot of people were surprised by that because Reed was seen as the more quote unquote establishment person. And, you know, a lot of Jones surrogates hate Lewis Reed. When you think about it, though, and and you have to kind of think about this dispassionately, there are two things you got to keep in mind. First of all, I don't remember a single instance where Reed and Jones have publicly sparred against each other personally over the past three or four years. Maybe their surrogates have, but I don't think that they personally have a bad relationship. But number two, and I think Jones knows this, it doesn't do her any good to start the relationship off as mayor with Reed on a bad foot, especially when, frankly, they have similar goals. I think they both want to reduce crime, and I think they want to 
produce more development in North St. Louis. They probably have different ideas on how to get there. But it's like it makes her pathway easier to have Reed with her, especially if there are instances where her and Green don't agree with each other because Green is like notoriously independent mm-hmm. and and sometimes goes her own way. And she and Reed also do not have the best of relationships. So Jones can be a, a tiebreaker in that sense of does she align with Reed on some issues? Does she align with Green on some issues? How independent will she be kind of on, on those issues? Which way does a tiebreak go on the board? Again, it does uh, Comptroller Green no good to pick sides in that race. Um, but again, as you mentioned, she's independent and I think she's also fairly pragmatic about some things that if there is a goal that she can achieve by aligning with President Reid on one issue and uh, Mayor-elect Jones on another issue, she's going to do that. You don't get elected to your seventh full term unopposed without having some kind of you know political savvy. Yeah, I just got to say before we go into our last segment, um, if if Francis Slay is in the Hall of Fame for his ability to build political coalition. Uh, Darlene Green is right next to that because not only has she built a North-South coalition, she rarely has attracted any opponent to an office that is very, very powerful. So uh, I guess they will both be looking forward to that inauguration in that imaginary thing I just made up. We'll be right back after this short break. And now for our final segment of the show, Rachel and I are going to answer questions from you, uh, the listeners. Slash Twitter followers. Sw- slash we Twitter. think there's a fair amount of overlap. Right? Um, so uh, one of the people that responded to you wants to know, is there some kind of breakdown of which caucus each alderman falls into? Like who are firmly in the progressive camp, who are in the establishment, who are in the middle, et cetera. So as we talked about earlier, I think there are probably about 10 or 11 candidates or individuals who you could say fall squarely into progressive all the time individuals. I would put Alderwoman Green in there. I would put uh, Peel, Stevens, uh, Page. I don't know. I don't know how much of that was he was a progressive individual versus he, he was not Tamika Hubbard. I think he'll be. it'll be interested to see um, – where his policies come down. You can put Annie Rice into that category most times. Uh, Dan Gunther is generally kind of there. Uh, Shane Cohn also is usually there. But again, a lot of that is going to depend on an issue. It's a fragile but working coalition. Sometimes they may be able to hold 15 together. Sometimes they may not. And remember, if one of them isn't there, you're down to 14. You lose a majority. So yes, again, um, You've got 15 who probably self-identify as progressive, but that is the bare minimum you need to get anything done. Another Twitter follower of yours asked, for the first time, both mayoral candidates were women. How do you think that impacted the race? Wow, that's that's actually a really good question. Um, I think it made other factors such as race maybe a little bit more important. We have seen that the city can elect a black woman as a, a, a representative. We saw that with Cori Bush, but it was a different race in that she was running against a black man. It was not, you know, a black woman versus a white woman. You know that it's 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 hard to say. Um, how many people sat out maybe because there was some uh, misogyny involved, whether, um, you know, they just sat and said, okay, I can, you know, live with this person more kind of thing. 
Um, it, it forced people, I think, to confront some some other issues and talk about some other issues. But it's difficult to to for me, at least, to say uh, how that would have made a difference. Uh, Jason, I'm kind of actually curious to hear what, what you think about this, if it, if it made a difference or was it just sort of old fights, old barriers kind of just in two different forms. Well, I do think the fact that both were single mothers definitely changed the dynamics of it. Um, I think both of them have a much different perspective from me, a a married heterosexual man with children, um, and what it requires to navigate St. Louis being in that. So I think that was really good. Yeah, I think going forward, that'll make a difference. Um, You know, how they conducted the race, maybe, I don't know. But in terms of, you know, was it just sort of old fights and arguments grafted onto two different individuals who just happened to both be women? Yeah, I don't know. I I don't know if I have a solid answer to that question. Um, But I, I do think that because those two did not really like each other before this campaign, and I don't think really like each other afterward. I think that that had more of an impact than their gender. Like, I think that both of them have disliked each other immensely for several years now. Uh, Another question, Board of Freeholders update with three (laughs) exclamation points. By the way, for our listeners that don't know, the Board of Freeholders is this board of St. Louis residents and St. Louis County residents and one person picked by the governor that comes up with ideas on how to consolidate either services or governments between St. Louis and St. Louis County. I guess I can answer that because like the process stalled out because the city couldn't approve any of the the city members. I don't really know where that process lies, whether it's inactive. I think at some point, doesn't it just like expire? Don't they have to have like done something within a period of time? It's unclear because since the city members never got seated, you can make an argument that it never started. But what I think may happen is there may be an entirely new effort because uh, Jones and St. Louis County Executive Sam Page are uh, friendly with each other. They both share a political consultant, Richard Callow, and they also, you know, endorsed each other as well. They may be working more cohesively on that. I could also see... Although the issue with the cities was not anything to do with the county, though. No. That was solely on a process issue. Now, maybe if she looks at and changes and, and, and does that process but, but Chris, a little but, better. But let's but... be honest. Kristen never wanted to go through the Board of Freeholders process. She had said during the Better Together debacle that she didn't support it. And I don't think she was very enthusiastic about it, whereas Paige was. I think another area where I don't know where this would be the Board of Freeholders job, but it may just be something that the Paige and uh, Jones could work together. It's something I talk about all the time because it's personally affected me. Jones has come out and said that special school districts should expand into the city. That's going to take a whole lot of political and legislative work to accomplish, but that could actually be something that could happen if there's political will to do it. I don't know, though. I think a lot's going to depend on a lot of different factors. And I think you could make the argument that at least now, yes, in education for all students is important in the city. But do you have to stop people who are leaving for other reasons as well? And I have a question. Uh, who will replace Jones as city treasurer? Uh, because of uh, state law, the mayor replaces a vacancy in the treasurer's office. Um, so Jones will get to a point her own successor. I just got to say this, and I'm not going to directly criticize anybody, but it is not super unusual when somebody wins an executive leadership post and then vacates it for that person to fill that position. It happened 
in the 1970s when Kit Bond was elected governor and he replaced himself as auditor. So I, I think we need to stop and say stop the commentary that this is like unprecedented or weird because it's not. Uh, it's but, state law. I mean, you could argue you could argue that it doesn't happen very often. No, but, but it happens. It does happen, and it is in state law. She is not going around no. or using any loophole to do this. Now, I've heard a few people. Um, Alderman Shane Cohn has been thrown out, who just won re-election uh, in the 25th Ward. That's uh, the mighty unopposed. <laughs> uh, Megan Green has been mentioned by a couple people. The people that I've heard the most uh, is Recorder of Deeds Michael Butler, I've also heard State Senator Carla May, and the Butler choice on its face doesn't make a lot of sense because going from recorder of deeds to treasurer seems like a pretty lateral move, but it would allow um, Jones to fill the recorder of deeds post, too. So it depends on the on the degree of the game that you want to play here. Yeah, like, and, and if any of those people were appointed, there would be special elections either for the Senate seat that uh, May holds or for the aldermanic seats in the 15th or the 25th. Uh, another possibility, and, and Ben Murray, the aforementioned political observer who I have a lot of respect for, pointed out that uh, it may be a possibility, mm-hmm. is someone like Michelle Sherrod, who is not in office right now, but is highly qualified to be treasurer. I mean, it could also be somebody in her staff now, like Jared Boyd, who's worked with Jones for years, or somebody who is not an elected official, because there are other opportunities if Jones wants to appoint an elected official to something for that to happen. So that's either a department head, the assessor, because that's going to have to be appointed, or a whole bunch of other things. It doesn't necessarily have to be the treasurer. That's true. I think we can definitely rule out two people. I think we can definitely rule out Jeffrey Boyd and most likely Kara Spencer. Although, uh, yeah, I don't think either of those things are going to happen. What are your final thoughts about Tuesday? My final thought was... I think it was, I I am not surprised by the result, but I think there are a lot of people out there who thought it was not going to be as close as it was. Um, You know, there was a lot of feeling out there like, oh, this is going to be a landslide. I don't even know why we're having this election. It's, you know, Jones is to lose. And that may have been the case, but it was um, not it was a it was a closer race than I think people expected. But I also think it is interesting to see St. Louis take these steps in electing a, a unapologetically progressive, unapologetically black woman. And in some ways, yes, giving her a I'm going to say it again, working if fragile coalition at the St. Louis Board of Aldermen. Does this really represent a sea change? Is this momentary because we had candidates? I don't know. But it's interesting to see if this is kind of a turning point for the city away from, as you mentioned, that you know previous business labor coalition towards something that maybe more accurately reflects where the city is or at least where the voting population of the city is. My final thought is that this oppositionary coalition that led not only to the demise of Steve Stanger and the, the rise of Sam Page, but now the election of Tashara Jones, I mean, they've spent the last six or seven years generally as not having consolidated power. Either they were on the outs or they only had the county but not the city. Now they have the county and the city. So they don't have the excuse anymore of not being able to govern. Like they have to actually do things and produce. Are the citizens of St. Louis are are not going to elect them anymore. I mean, we're kind of seeing that with Page right now. He is in a very fragile political state where he has alienated a lot of black political leaders in North St. Louis County. And I don't think that his election in 2022 is assured at all. And I that, don't think so either. I think I, you're right. And I think that that could change the dynamics of what Jones can do if 
he doesn't win. Um, but I do think that this is a landmark moment, not only for black women in St. Louis politics, but it is a completely new era in St. Louis politics that is away from the very successful years of Francis Slay. And whether it's a better era, we're going to find out over the next four years. Thank you, Rachel, as always, for talking with me about this election. For all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. How can people follow you on Twitter? At our Lipman, two P's, two N's. We'll see you next time.